Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Are You a Robot? Today, we are joined by none other than John Zerilli. Let's get a quick bio intro from him, and then we'll jump into this full conversation. Uh, my name's John Zerilli, and I'm a philosopher uh, based at the University of Oxford. I work on uh, the philosophy of cognitive science, the philosophy of artificial intelligence, and the philosophy of law. I have a background in law and cognitive science and philosophy. So for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, my name is Demetrios Brinkman. I am the host of Are You a Robot? And this is a show, a podcast, a video cast, if you will, where we aim to tackle some of the greatest questions and challenges that come up and stem from the use of AI and tech in our modern day and age. The way that we're doing that is we're gathering some of the best and the brightest minds in their respective fields, like none other than John Zerilli, who wrote the incredible book, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence, which I mentioned it in the conversation, but I highly recommend everyone checks out, no matter what the level of understanding you have with AI and machine learning. It was a pleasure for me to read it, and I am so excited to get to interview John. But now back to this quick intro before we full-on have the conversation. So we've got an incredible sponsor, and I want to give them a shout-out before we start. Ethics Grade is doing some innovative stuff around ESG ratings. In case you do not know what ESG ratings are, that is where a company will do a bunch of research and rate other companies on their non-financial impact that they have on the world. So Ethics Grade is taking this one step further and playing very niche, and they're looking at the AI ethics programs, they're looking at the data governance programs, they're highly focused on how companies are conducting themselves when it comes to this new frontier of AI and of data collection, data governance, all of that good stuff. If you're ever wondering what different companies score and what your company scores at, they probably have you rated at their website, ethicsgrade.io. Of course, I'll leave a link in the description below. And yeah, go in there, play around. You may be surprised by what you find. I know I was definitely shocked the first time that I downloaded a few of these scorecards. I was not expecting the scores that I got. Let's just say that. So if you get some scores that you are surprised with, please let us know. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. We're on there. And last but not least, we would love it if you take a moment and you either leave a comment, rate us on iTunes, follow us, subscribe, all of that good stuff because it really helps out the algorithm to suggest more of this content so that it can get into as many people's ears as possible. That is all. I really hope you enjoy this conversation that I have with John Zerilli. It was a pleasure speaking to him and it is amazing getting to see the way that he distills some of these very complicated topics around artificial intelligence and how it looks. My biggest takeaway, I'll just say it now, it's not a spoiler, but it is something that I continue to think about even months after I had this conversation with them when I am recording this intro right now, and that is how do you define these 
terms that are such pillars to the AI ethics movement. How do we define trustworthy? How do we define robust? What does that actually mean? And what are concrete steps that we can take to make AI more trustworthy? What can we do to make AI more robust? So I think you'll enjoy the answers that John had. Let's get into this conversation. Are you a robot? John, it is a pleasure to have you on here. And you're so modest in your intro. You did not mention anything about my new favorite book that you just put out. I'll put it up here in case anyone is watching and they want to check it out. A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence. I am a huge fan because of the way that you were able to take these complex topics and really multi-layered topics and distill them down into easy to understand. And really, it, it took things that I had in my mind that weren't so clear. And when I read it, it was like, yes, that's how you say that in words, right? So I loved reading it. And I, I mentioned this before, and I'll say it again. It's one of those books that I think everyone from a machine learning engineer or a data scientist all the way to my mom who can barely exit out of a browser window can really get value from. And it's because of these deep, deep topics that you're able to present. And so I'm super excited to talk to you all about that today. And thank you for coming on here. It's my pleasure. And thank you for that ringing endorsement as well. That was the plan to get all of those people satisfied was the plan. So it looks like judging from your reaction, that we're hitting the mark. So I'm glad oh, to nice. hear that. I thought the plan was to get a ringing endorsement from me as the starting <laughs> point of this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it, you did a great job and I will not sugarcoat it. It's a very complicated topic and I'd love to just dive into your reason behind even trying to attack something as deep as this. Uh, when I graduated from my PhD, I entered the academic job market and I found myself a postdoc working on artificial intelligence and uh, the ethics and regulation of artificial intelligence. And uh, I had to learn as I went um, and I found that it was difficult to come up, come up to speed because it's such a sprawling topic with many tentacles there are issues around bias and there are issues around liability and there are issues about whether machines should be afforded personal uh, personality, kind of legal separate personality, issues about regulation and issues about control. There were so many different aspects of it and I had to come to grips with it uh, bit by bit. So I thought, wouldn't it be useful if there was a, a guide that could just bring anybody that wanted to get up to speed up to speed. And that was where the thought first uh, emerged, the, the idea of having a book that just covered everything, the main issues on the, um, the ethics and the politics of artificial intelligence for the interested layperson. That's oh, yeah. the idea. That makes total sense. And you have some co-writers that you wrote it with. Can you explain how that worked out? Are they all writing it with you or what 
what did that process look like? Yeah, so because I was new to the area, there were some areas on which I was able to get up to speed fairly quickly because I was researching them more intensively than other areas. So questions about uh, the control of artificial intelligence systems, the psychology, the psychological effects of working with technology on the human users. This is touching on my cognitive science background. Um, questions about explainability and how to render machine learning systems explainable to people, which touches on both my cognitive science and my law background. These were all things that I found I was able to come up to speed with pretty quickly and even exceed the general understanding of people in the area. So I thought, okay, I'm going to carve up the space in a certain way. These are all the issues that I see. We can have a chapter for each of them. I basically chose the chapters that I could do, and that amounted to something like, in the end, half the book. But as for the other half, I thought I needed to get expertise. And so I approached a number of people around the world, including some colleagues that I was working with in New Zealand at the time, and I got them to draft chapters on their areas of expertise, but I told them, I, I don't want, as I put it in the preface to the book, this to be a clunky miscellany of jarring styles because the academic world does not need another edited volume. This is going to be a readable book for the intelligent layperson that is interested. So if, with your permission, I told my contributors, I'll take over the bits that you write and I'm going to rewrite them and have it so that it blends in imperceptibly with the, the tone and the style that I have set in the, the half that I've written. And so that's why the book now reads with, with one voice and has a single arc, although it tra travels across all of these different areas in the subject um, and has the benefit of expertise. So I think what we've managed to do is get a book that has expertise as well as readability. Yeah, and it makes total sense that you said that's going to be one of my goals is readability because that is one of the things that I notice. It's very much readable as opposed to some of these papers that I try and sink my teeth into and then I get about halfway through and I need to go take a nap because yeah. it's just so hard to wrap your mind around it. And this one, again... It's really well done in that aspect. And there are probably three things that I'd love to talk to you about today from the book, which are transparency, explainability, and then bias. And I think those are all really hot topics when it comes to just AI or machine learning in general, and especially on this show. And before we get into that, though, I think it's probably worth asking you about this little section that you put at the beginning. I think it's even in the preface or in the introduction. And you mentioned that you left out AI rationality on the in the greater book. And you said, we're not even going to go there. We're not even going to touch that. And for me, that was something I had to know. Why did you decide to leave that out? The book is necessarily, we say this, I say this in the prologue, the book is necessarily going to have a political sweep it's not going to be concerned with every aspect of artificial intelligence. It's mainly concerned with how in artificial intelligence impacts on the lives of, of citizens. And that's why it's called a citizen's guide. Uh, as for the rationality of machine intelligence, 
there are interesting questions that arise and questions that um, lay people and citizens will find interesting but that won't necessarily uh, make the difference between them um, appreciating the technology and not appreciating the technology, if I could put it that way. So there's any number of questions that we could have asked and addressed in the book concerning how machines think and whether machines think and how similar uh, uh, sort of the the, the nature of of machine uh, cerebration is in comparison to human cerebration. But they're not really going to change uh, the fundamental issues that, that citizens require. So we decided to bracket those. To the extent that there are a couple of quite vivid points that can be made about the way machines tick over uh, and uh, that do have a significant bearing on on the citizen, well, then we address those in the prologue. But but we don't go on to deal with these questions in a, a more sort of rigorous philosophical fashion because that would mm-hmm. be beyond the remit of the book. Yeah, and something you say in there which made me think also is does a fish swim or does an airplane fly? And when we were talking before we hit record, I think you also mentioned the different nuances in languages. Maybe we could touch on that real fast before we move on. Yeah, so this is a point that's been made a number of times uh, that um, uh, probably the the linguist and philosopher Noam Chomsky has brought this point out more than anybody else, although I think he also borrows from someone else. The the question whether a machine thinks is thought to be a somewhat of a, a meaningless question or a futile question or perhaps just a semantic question about how our languages allow us to describe things. The question whether a machine thinks is basically no more interesting from, from this point of view, from this semantic point of view, uh, than the question whether submarines can swim or whether aeroplanes can fly. So in, in some languages, I believe it's Hebrew, uh, aeroplanes glide, whereas in Japanese, I think the locution is that aeroplanes leap, if I'm not mistaken, something something like that. But, of course, in Romance languages, Italian, French, um, and, of course, in English, they do fly. But it just seems to be uh, a question about how a language uh, gets to describe a particular property of the world. It doesn't seem to address anything more fundamental than that. Now, the question can be made more interesting. Um, we could rephrase it as, does a machine think in anything like the way that a human thinks? The, the thing that produces human thought, um, is there anything like that going on in the machine? We don't really know enough about how humans think to even begin to answer that question. It's extremely mysterious how humans think. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's another reason why I didn't bother addressing this in any greater detail in the book. Yeah, makes complete sense. So let's talk a little bit about transparency. Let's jump into that topic, which is another one of these ones that we could probably spend the whole hour talking about transparency. And as I mentioned before, you hear a lot of talk 
from people, especially the AI ethicists right now is, and they're saying how we need transparency and we need to have it in all of the systems that we create with AI. And you mentioned in the book that transparency is a non-negotiable and just about everyone agrees on that fact. But then when you dig a little bit deeper and you say, what is transparency? Then that's where things start to get muddied up. And I love this just as a side note too. In the book, it feels like there's a lot of those times where you present something and you say, yes, this is something we can all agree upon. Like we want a, we want less biased or whatever it may be. And then you dig a little bit deeper and you say, but let's look at why this is so complicated and the problems with just saying, yeah, we want a non-biased system and we want it to be fully transparent and then we can have trustworthy AI. And to get to that, it's again, it's a large jump from just going from a little bit of bias to no bias. And, and is that even possible? We can discuss that a little bit later if you want. But as for now, maybe we can break down this idea of transparency and how that's non-negotiable. But then what is transparency? What does that word even mean? I would have thought pretty uh, familiar uh, phenomenon in, in life, right? You often get people agreeing on the destination, uh, but they disagree about is how to get there. So we can all agree with these vague, uh, ambiguous, somewhat hazy concepts of transparency and uh, equality and fairness and being nice and being a good person. But then how you go about doing that in a particular context, that's the point where you get disagreement. And it's no different here. What is transparency? So at the, at the broadest level, transparency is probably something like um, accountability. So when you talk about a, an organization or an institution or a government being transparent, you mean there's nothing, basically, there's nothing shady going on, that um, it's, it's doing what it's meant to do. And because there's nothing shady going on, we can, if we want, have access to what, what is happening. We can, we can make inquiries uh, through perhaps freedom of information laws. We can work out what's going on and we can get a, a, a regular digest via reputable and, and trustworthy news sources about what's going on because, as I say, there's nothing shady going on. So at, at the broadest level, it means something like accountability, which, which is a function of um, the, uh, the fact that the, the institution concern has some sort of integrity. Um, but then obviously it breaks down into something more specific. So from that, we can go into three directions. One direction talks about, I would say, liability. So when someone does something wrong, um, and occasions harm to someone else, whether it's a government body or whether it's a private actor like a company, you you want to you'd like to expect that they will take responsibility for what they've done and potentially pay up or compensate for the harms that they've that they've caused. So that's a notion of transparency that's all about fixing 
what what you've done if you've done something amiss and it it reasonably logically flows from the idea of accountability so accountability if you think about it is like an ongoing obligation to do the right thing whereas uh, liability is something like and if i don't do the right thing i will make amends for it so that's so that, one direction it's like owning up to your yeah. problems or like the buck stops here kind of thing yes yes okay. yeah um in another direction accountability or transparency um becomes something like um accessibility so i may want to know uh what data was used to train an algorithm but i may not have access to that data because that data is uh, intellectual property for example or i may want to know how an algorithm works but i don't have access to the secret recipe the special source because that's proprietary it's hidden behind intellectual property laws and the company that uh, created developed the system is under no legal obligation to disclose to me how the algorithm was constructed so that would be a lack of transparency but what what would transparency entail in that situation it would be something like accessibility um and then the third sense and the one that we focus on in the book is basically explainability is the, the ability to um have an algorithm explained to whichever audience uh needs to know how it works in whatever language best suits that audience so i'd say those are the three areas uh, or, or, or sub uh, sub categories of of transparency and and we focus on that last one explainability yeah speaking of explainability and anyone out there listening who is playing buzzword bingo right now it probably is yelling bingo because of all these great buzzwords that are coming out i mean explainability is huge right now and i know a lot of people within the technical machine learning community that are trying to figure out explainability and i know a lot of people within the ai ethics community who are also trying to crack this nut too and you make the case for that a little bit in the book how there are essentially these two types of explainability or we are looking at explainability in two ways there's the explainability from the data scientist who wants to know why something was chosen and then there's the explainability from the side of the user right like me on youtube and i see something that pops up and if i want to know more about why that recommendation popped up it says well people in your demographic who like this channel also watch this channel and so those to me feel like they're two separate explainability or it reasons for explainability yeah they 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 are they're two i would say almost completely separate criteria by which to determine how something works and what is often i suppose lost in the call for explainable algorithms is which of the two is most relevant i would say that for the citizen it's the second of those two in other words the explainability that you as a user um require 
when you are interfacing with that system. So it, it, it doesn't matter then from that point of view how the algorithm works at a fundamental technical level. And, and even if you explained it to me as a lay user, it wouldn't make any sense anyway. What matters to me as a, as a, a user, or let me use another term rather than user, because the user of a system often actually refers to someone that's also quite techy, that's using the algorithm. Let's use the word the decision subject. And, and that's a term that appears in the GDPR, the European General Data Protection Law. So the, the decision subject is the person who's been affected by a decision made by an algorithm. What do they want to know? Well, I answer this question by reference to what a decision subject would want to know had a human being made the decision. And when a human makes a decision that affects someone else, affects their the, the other person's rights, um, uh, duties, legitimate expectations, the decision subject requires an answer that tells the person what factors led the decision maker to form that particular opinion uh, and how those factors combine to produce the final result, basically. And this is always cashed out in terms of the beliefs and the desires of, of the decision maker. So it doesn't matter in what context you're, you're speaking, whether you're talking about a central bank that is working out how to fix the, the cash rate, the level of interest rates, whether to in, in embark in quantitative easing or, or not, uh, whether you're talking about a hospital administration board and its decisions on what new algorithm to deploy to administer beds in, in emergency um, or perhaps a local council, what led a local council to decide that three stories is the maximum height for buildings constructed on a particular street. It really doesn't matter. Or just you talking to uh, your friend about when to meet up and why you were late. In all of these hugely varied contexts, you can basically sum up the explanation given by the decision maker in terms of their beliefs about the situation they were confronting and their goals, what they wanted to achieve. And so I basically say, that's the starting point. That's the starting point for thinking about the proper format for explanations from machine learning systems when we're interested in um, having explanations fashioned to satisfy a decision subject, someone who's been affected by a decision. Never mind the tech people and the, the developers and, and the companies behind the algorithms, they may have their needs and they might need something more technical, but the, the person affected by the decision doesn't need that um, enormous technical apparatus to appreciate what's going on. So that's the starting that, point. That level of abstraction or the way that you're able to convey that information to someone that, again, it's like being able to talk about how this complex decision was made and do it in a way, like you said, what's, how can we boil this down to almost like, what are the essentials here that someone is going to need to hear so that they can take the decision or they can take what the prediction has given them 
and they can feel comfortable with it. Even if it's giving them a prediction that they don't want to hear, like in some cases, the they get rejected for a loan. But if I want to know more, that at least give me the decency to know like why I was scored this way. And with that, as you're saying, it, what is it? Desire and the... Beliefs. What are the two? So the desire and beliefs, I think that would be huge to have. And people would, wouldn't feel cheated, I, I feel like, if you had that at least to fall back on. Yeah, so and, for, for a, a loan algorithm, mm-hmm. a credit, credit assessment algorithm, something like, um, I'm going to state it in terms of beliefs and desires, but it, obviously the, the machine itself is just a dead entity. It doesn't have these mental yeah. states. But it's something like the machine is saying, I have looked at 10,000 previous applications. I have found that 95% of people with an income less than X default on their loans. Another 95% of people who have assets worth less than Y default. Um, I believe you fit that category on the basis of the information you have fed me. You have income less than so much. You have uh, assets less than so much. Therefore, I said no loan for you. Mm. And, of course, the goal in that context is very simple. It's just to assess um, creditworthiness. One thing I find incredible about when you bring this topic up, and it's probably the, the main thing that has stuck with me since reading the book, is how we hold a double standard to the machines and humans, especially when it comes to decision-making. Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, so it has to do with what I said a little earlier when I said that there's some ambiguity or confusion um, in the calls for greater explainability. On the one hand, you think, well, I mean, explainability is a good thing and we should have algorithms be as explainable as possible. But then... The call, if you if you look carefully at the documents that that make the 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 claim that algorithms should be explainable, what they seem to be aiming for is explainability at the level of the the deep architecture, something like understanding what would be the equivalent of the cognitive processes going on deep under the hood, and that's strange if what we're interested in is giving explanations that purport to justify actions, recommendations, decisions. Whenever we as human beings give an account of our actions and recommendations and decisions, we certainly don't furnish explanations that have anything like that sort of architectural detail. We don't talk about what food we ate that morning uh, along the way to explaining why it is that right now I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, We certainly don't inquire about um, all the formative experiences that I've had in my life that have have contributed to me being the kind of character that I have at the moment and uh, perhaps uh, what what, what subjects I took in university. Hmm. We don't ask that. That's not part of the explanation. We just give explanations in terms of this is what I believe about the situation, this is my goal, and that's why I did it. So this does seem to be a double standard, as it were, 
in our expectations of explainability when, when, we, when we turn to machines, where suddenly we want the, the architectural innards uh, being brought, brought out, broken up, brought into the light of day. Now, I, I should say it, it's a defeasible position that we should start with the human as the benchmark of explainability. And for that reason, I say it's a starting position. There might be occasions where we do need further information than can simply be obtained at the level of beliefs and desires. So maybe there, are, there will be occasions where even a decision subject, in order to be satisfied that that decision um, adequately accounts for why Sorry, so that, that explanation adequately accounts for why the decision was made. There may be occasions where more is needed than simply the equivalent of the beliefs and desires of that system. But I would, I would expect these to be fairly rare so far as decision subjects are concerned. I would expect that if anybody's going to need to know more than the, the superficial stuff, It'll be the developers, the, the teams that are trying to debug the system or that are trying to develop a better system who want to improve the system for quality purposes, quality control purposes. They're going to need to know much more about the machine than, than the ordinary decision subject. But, but that's explanation for an entirely different purpose. That's explanation for improvement, quality control. That's not explanation for the purpose of justification of action. When we're in the realm of, of what philosophers call practical reason, reasons for deciding, reasons for acting one way or another, when we're in that realm of practical reason, as we so often are every day with ourselves, with our families, with our, with our uh, colleagues and so forth, then what we need are the kinds of decision explanations that I've been talking about, Deci explanations that are cashed out in terms of agent beliefs and desires. Well, and I think you mentioned the point on some of these. And for for anyone who has ever gone out and tried to get a job and interviewed, and then they don't get that job or they get ghosted by the recruiter or the company, and then you try to figure out what did I do wrong or why did you not hire me, you get crickets. And so there was that point that you made that it's like, for some of these, we're expecting to give explainable reasons for why the machine made these decisions, but we don't even expect a reason when it's a human making this decision. So if it's a human that ghosts me when I'm trying to get a job, then I can't do anything about it. But if it's a machine that ghosts me, then I really want to know, well, what was it? I should expect to know why the machine made that prediction. And then the other part that I found fascinating with what you were just saying and i wonder about this is with autonomous vehicles right now they are starting to be rolled out right in many parts of different parts of the u.s and i'm not sure if the uk has them but it's becoming something where there's a lot of different companies that want to it, be the first mover and Autonomous vehicles seem like they're starting to happen. And we, as a society, I don't think we are ready at all 
for anyone to die behind the wheel of an autonomous vehicle. Yet so many people die every day behind humans driving the cars. And the autonomous vehicles are killing much less, yet there's outcry and when one of them happen, when one accident happens from an autonomous vehicle. And so I really wonder about that and going back to this idea of like, if it's safer to be in an autonomous vehicle, yet it's still not 100% safe, are we going to accept it? And if it is, it, can we just get to, like you were talking about, can we get to where the autonomous vehicle is safer than a human, then should we start accepting that autonomous vehicles are like that? And from what I've heard from, uh, actually, I was just interviewing somebody about this last week, and they were saying, no way can you accept that. That is not at all until it's very, until it's like 99% safe, then I don't want anything to do with it because there are so many flaws and there's so many problems. But I look at it like, well, the humans, you know, you if you've ever been in the car with somebody while they're texting, I would much rather take an autonomous vehicle at this point in time. So uh, there wasn't really a question there, but you may have a comment on that. Yeah, so what, what, you're, what you're getting at here is the moral psychology of human beings. There is a fairly clear body of research that converges on a, a fairly robust fact about human beings and, and algorithms. And that is that humans are perfectly willing to trust an algorithm under conditions in which either they don't know there's an algorithm there, and this is, so in other words, it's a kind of what, what's often called embedded AI. It's sort of just built in to the technology and you don't even really see it, it's invisible. An example would be the autopilot that basically gets us safely from one um, spot on the, the surface of the earth to another spot through the air at extremely high velocity. So when we don't know it's there, we're kind of okay with it. Um, and we're okay with it also if we have been convinced that it is much better than the best human expert at doing that thing. The flip side of this, though, is that human beings have unrealistically high expectations of, of technology. And it doesn't take very much for that unrealistic set of expectations to um, decompose. It, so human trust tends to be at its height in the very earliest phases of dealing with a new technology. And the moment they see that system err, make a mistake, then the uh, trust in that technology just plummets. Um, and it's, it's hard, it's hard to win back that trust for the, for the machine to win back that trust. So when you're talking about autonomous vehicles, I think the situation here is, the problem here is it's not invisible. When you get into a car and then you are driven without having to drive, it's, it's not something that you can just ignore. You can't just say, well, 
I don't. Ha- I can just ignore the fact that that an algorithm is here. You can't ignore it because you're not doing what you would have been doing otherwise. You you are not driving it. Someone is driving. What's driving it? The algorithm is driving it. So it's unfortunately it's a it's a case where you are conscious of the algorithm, and that's generally not propitious for people to trust an algorithm when they're aware of it there. And also because of very high-profile, catastrophic and tragic failures with um, autonomous vehicles, I would say collective human trust in autonomous vehicles has plummeted and it's going to take a very long time for humans to be convinced that, uh, that they can trust those systems. Let me also just finish off by going back to a point that you made at the beginning of your short um, disquisition there you were talking about that humans do have this um, tendency to trust or or should I say they have a tendency to just accept that if a a system uh, sorry if a if a human fails to give them an explanation for Mm. why they were rejected for a job they'll just sort of take it lying down as it were but if if it's a machine that does it, then suddenly they are much more forceful and uh, uh, strident in, in requesting some sort of explanation or an account for why they were rejected. So what I want to say about that is in no way does the position I put forward in the book mean that we should take the same a lackadaisical, laissez-faire attitude that we do to to, to humans mm-hmm. and then port that across to our dealings with machines. So in any context, for example, like the one you mentioned where the normal human practice is, oh, well, I didn't make it, that's okay, I'll just I'll get on with my life. I'm not saying that that's what you should do if a machine's making the decision. So the human is the benchmark, and, and by that I mean in the ideal human case. And in the ideal human case, a human gives an account for why they did something. They explain their actions and they set out their reasoning. That's the benchmark. The benchmark is not what the human would do in a scenario uh, where they would just acquiesce to a rejection and then just get go on their merry way. I'm not suggesting that that's the benchmark. And so therefore, when a machine decides that you're no good for a job, that you should just take your cue from what you would do had a human decided that you were no good for a job. I just want to make that clarification. Perfect. There is something else that we talked about the other day that I think we should probably touch on right here. And that is this idea, because you mentioned the different types of AI that we as humans come into contact with and how it's not... All, all quite the same. I mean, there's hundreds, thousands of use cases that we have with AI. And you mentioned there's embeddings. And like you, you said, you have recommender systems that are telling you which Netflix show to watch. And then there were a few other ones. Can you go over that real fast for me? Yeah. So when we talk about AI, we're talking about in a large category of, of, of objects we on, on, on probably at the most common level we're talking about embedded AI so that's the AI that's basically part of the internet of things if you've heard that expression the AI that you find in um, your Netflix 
app that recommends uh, films or shows for you to watch or that's embedded in the Amazon search engine, which recommends books to you, or that's on your phone when you are trying to get around um, and you open Google Maps. Um, that's embedded AI. And that's the one I say that's most probably the most common that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. Then there's virtual AI. Virtual AI is something like Siri on your phone or Alexa. These are kind of embedded in a way, and yet they take on aspects of human intersocial personality. They've got something about them that makes them be related to in the way that we relate to each other. But at the top of the, I suppose, the AI hierarchy, we're getting more and more anthropomorphic as we go, is robotic AI, where you have an embodied agent that can move around. It has sensors, so it can take in inputs from the world around it. It has actuators, so it can move. Um, That's a different kind of AI again. And it's important to divide up those three types of AI because you might say things about AI in general but what you say may only be true with regard to one of those. So it's, it's important to be clear. And I'll just give you a very quick example. So when I said that a human, overall, if a human has been told that a system is very capable and has a high accuracy rate, then trust tends to be quite high. And then if it sees the system make a mistake, trust plummets and it's hard to win back. Um, of course, if if the system doesn't make that mistake, then the human will just keep trusting it. Now, that package of claims that I've just made is only true of essentially automation in the form of embedded AI. So I, I could not make that claim if I was talking about robotic AI. With robotic AI, what you tend to find is something... I would say almost of the reverse, where if if the robot is performing really well, it arouses distrust, suspicion, animosity, and fear on the part of the human. That's and then when the robot makes a mistake, the opposite happens. It's almost as if we look at it and think, you know, isn't that cute? It's it's made a mistake. It's it's like me. It's not a threat anymore. It's more human. So it's important to uh, tease out which of these forms of AI we're talking about when we make claims about them, you know, their, their effects on us, for example. It's so funny you say that because just with you saying that, I instinctively go back to the way that I look at them and I, I would think that I totally am just another sheep and would think the same thing, especially when it comes to robotics and you see... When they make a mistake, it's like, okay, I can let my guard down. This isn't going to take over. And when it's doing everything perfect, it's a little bit like, oh, this is scary how well it's able to do it. I don't know if we should continue to advance this one. So it it makes complete sense. And now (laughs) let's talk a little bit about bias. And the idea of bias is another huge topic. 
and I have heard many that advocate for systems that are totally free of bias. And I wonder if you feel like that is a realistic expectation. So it's the expectation that bias might be eliminated entirely is unrealistic. Um, every one of us comes with a bias. I mean, at, at the most basic level, we all inhabit a particular position on the surface of the earth, which means that we have a particular perspective with reference to the objects around us, and that colours how we see things, how they appear to us. Bias is just an ineradicable feature of what it is to be an entity that takes in inputs and does things with them and moves around. So that, that's, that's too high um, an expectation. Um, as far as... Uh, w w it's, so it's not a problem we can eradicate, but it is a problem we can manage. And that's the crucial difference. So, so bias mm. in machines, which simply inherit all the biases of human beings and the human beings who create them, can only be managed, and they can be managed better or or worse than um, yeah other options. Is is so? What's what's the question then? More specific. Yeah. So when it comes to bias, I think that's something very interesting that you talk about how it can be managed as opposed to eradicated completely. And I've often thought about this when it, when you look at how algorithms are and the inherent bias, and you speak about the inherent bias just in humans in general and, and also the way that we make decisions and then our cultures that we're brought up in and all of that being embedded into the algorithms that we're creating. And a lot of times we don't even realize that we have bias. Right. And sometimes we even think that there's no bias involved in that. And with more confidence than the more we have bias. And so when it comes to this idea that you're proposing on how to effectively manage bias as opposed to eradicate it, what does that look like in form? Is that something where it's just making sure the person who is interacting with the algorithm or the AI knows that? Potentially, there's bias in these different areas. So keep that in your mind as you're interacting with your algorithm. Or is that something that is totally going on behind the scenes that the people that are deploying it are keeping in their minds? Like, what does that look like in practice? Okay, so I think in view of what I've said about the um, pervasiveness of bias and the, the, the fact that bias is just part of the human condition. Um, in, indeed, it's just part of the, the condition of any organism, as I say, that, that can move around and that can take in inputs. The, I think what we need to do is simply be upfront about the biases that we have and to stick to them. So, so if, if I have a particular perspective on a, on a subject, if I'm coming at a subject, let's say, with uh, a bias let's say, from anthropology or a, a, a bias from, from history, a, a historical bias, because I'm, 
let's say I'm saturated in history, I'm historically very, very well informed, and so I look at problems with this bias of history. Be upfront about the bias that you have so that people can take in what you say and uh, discount for the bias that you've you've disclosed and stick to that bias in the sense be consistent. So if I've if I'm coming to a problem with a historical bias, let's say, want of a better term, or, or a sociological bias or um, uh, an anthropological one, be consistent, stick with that bias so that your audience can then apply the relevant discount. Now, bringing it back to the machine context, um, it, basically the same principle holds. So if I, if, let's, let's um, take this up a few notches. Let's um, no longer talk about basic sort of perspectival bias and talk about the bias that most people are interested in when they're talking about machines, which is racial bias, gender bias, um, all of these sort of e cultural, like ethnic biases. Say, let's up the ante and let's yeah, get to the yeah. heart of what people are actually interested in. Yeah, so it, if we get to that level, the, the basic principle still applies in that people have biases and the important thing is that they disclose them, they, they're upfront about them. Of course, I'm not saying that if, if, you, if you happen to, if you, if you don't like a particular demographic. I'm not saying be upfront about it and stick with it. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that. But um, let's let's take an example. So there's an algorithm that has a, attained notoriety in the United States and in, indeed in the UK and in Europe more broadly around the world called Compass. And this algorithm is used to um, assess the risk that an inmate, for example, a prison inmate, will reoffend if released let's say, um, uh, on parole, or perhaps um, whether this person will evade the jurisdiction if, if granted bail. So that's the context. So this is what Compass is used for. And think of it as a system that just basically gives a score. Let's, for simplicity, let's just say 1 to 10. If you score 1, you're a very low risk of re-offending re or of evading the jurisdiction. If you score 10, bullseye. That person is going to reoffend. Don't let them let them loose. Um, okay, so obviously we want to eradicate or eliminate uh, racial bias, and it's it, it became a well known, as I say, notorious fact about Compass. So the this algorithm was um, assessed for its performance and the way it performed on different ethnic communities. And it was found that blacks in the US were twice as likely to be misclassified, incorrectly classified as high risk of offending as whites. And it was also found that whites are roughly twice as likely to be misclassified as low risk compared to blacks. And so that's unfair. That's I mean, patently unfair. You would expect that if it's going to make mistakes and it's going to give you false positives and, 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 and ping someone as a high risk um, and, and, and do so erroneously, you would hope that the rate at which it does that does not differ across the different demographics, across the different ethnicities that it's used on. Um, but this system failed that test. So it, it looked like it was unfair. 
as it turns out, the compass system is fair in another way. So if we define fairness to mean error, what's called error rate balance, or the, the more general term is classification parity, which is what we just said, where you, you get the mistakes, your, your rate of errors are the same across demographics regardless. If that's what you want, if that's what you think fairness means, having the same errors across demographics, compass was fair. But along a different definition of fairness, it actually turned out to be fair. So another definition of fairness is what's called calibration, which means that any score that the system gives should mean the same thing regardless of who it's applied to. So if I pluck a random member of the Hispanic community and they are assigned a 6 out of 10, 6 out of 10 should mean exactly the same thing in terms of probability of reoffending that it means for someone randomly plucked out of the black community or out of the Anglo-Saxon white community. A 6 out of 10 should mean the same thing. It should have the same predictive power irrespective of the group it's applied to. So compass, as it turns out, is fair if that's the definition of fairness that you mean, that any score means the same thing, has the same probability. And, and that really, I mean, it is, it's, it's worthwhile just reflecting on the fact that that is a genuine measure of fairness. Hmm. If, if 6 out of 10... Um, for a white person meant high risk, but if six out of ten meant um, uh, low risk for an African American, that there's something unfair about that. What we're saying is, well, uh, African Americans are very likely to reoffend, so a six out of ten is pretty good for them. Whereas white people, you know, they stay at home, they do the right thing, a 6 out of 10 is low. You can see that, that, that there's something reprehensible about that. So yeah. a, a risk score that means the same thing regardless of who it's applied to is a valuable thing and Compass satisfied that measure of fairness. It did not satisfy classification parity, the, the, the first measure we, we talked about. And a, an interesting property of this um, uh, algorithmic fairness is that you can show fairly easily using some elementary high school algebra that so long as the rates of crime differ in different ethnic groups in different communities across demographics as they will right it turns out that you cannot satisfy all of these different fairness measures so what that means is it's called the incompatibility. It's an incompatibility result. And what it means is that um, you've got to pick. Do you want predictive power? Um, so uh, a calibration where a, a score means the same thing regardless of who it's applied to? Or do you want what we call classification parity? You're going to have to pick one of those definitions. If you pick classification parity, you know, where you get the same number of false positives, errors, the same rate of errors across the different demographics, which is fair, you're not going to have yeah. calibration. 
And that's, that's a bad result. Hmm. On the other hand, if you have calibration, you're not going to have error rate balance or classification parity. Well, it seems like calibration is the logical one because of the exact reason that you stated that someone who is a judge can't know each ethnic groups. Right. It's like you're grading on a curve. Yeah. And so you have to go and check the cheat sheet for, okay, is a six in this ethnic group high or low? All right. Yeah. But then you do get these problems that have become very apparent with Compass. And so maybe it begs the greater question as to should we even be using AI in these use cases? Um, that's a, a good question. Um, I suspect, though, that these, these features of fairness that we see um, expressed mathematically in algorithms are just a, a formalization of conflicting intuitions of what it means to be fair in human beings. So even if we eliminate the algorithm entirely and just leave this up to human beings, we will still confront a version of these same questions, these same problems, because we're working with definitions of fairness. I mean, the, the law on sentencing, for example, doesn't say a judge can impose any sentence so long as it's fair. You don't have that. What you have are worked out explicit criteria for what to consider in determining the length of a sentence. And so, I mean, in doing that, we have, we, we've, we've staked some, some turf. We have, we've said, okay, so this is what we mean by fairness. And, and that fairness is going to be in conflict with somebody else's um, understanding of what should happen for that same crime, what sentence should be imposed for that same crime. And different jurisdictions differ on, on, what, on what factors can be taken into account when assessing that's a sentence. That's something we really don't like to address, right? And I think you mentioned this is we're codifying these really hard problems or these hard answers that we're not necessarily, it's, it's like, okay, as humans, we're just bringing it into the machine world, but we're bringing all of our baggage with it. And so now it's easier to look at and say, hey, there's problems with this. But when you look at it as a human too, you could also say, well, there's problems with this. And now when it's a machine, it's just easier to spot these problems and hopefully debug. But it comes back, it's... I, for me, it comes back to that autonomous vehicles question and you look at it and you say, well, are, they, are the judges doing better than they would have been doing without it? And so at what level do you start implementing this because it's actually it's augmenting their capabilities? And if there is some unfairness we want to try and debug it as best as possible but at the same time we have to recognize that there's always going to be some bias involved yeah so two things um i agree with you that it does in the end it comes down to working out which has the better performance metrics so is is that is the algorithm getting it better than the judge is it doing performing better than the judge but on that i just hasten to add 
what we should be comparing, we've got to be very precise about what we're comparing. We're comparing the ability of the algorithm to predict reoffending and the ability of the judge to predict reoffending. We're mm-hmm. not comparing, so in the case of sentencing, for example, we're not comparing um, the algorithm's performance in predicting reoffending with the judge's ability to issue good sentences. Because sentencing involves lots of different factors, lots of different considerations are built into the sentencing mm-hmm. exercise. One of them is predicting the likeliness of reoffending. But others might be things like um, uh, um, amenability to rehabilitation or um, connections to family and or a church community, for example. These might be factors that a a sentencing judge has to take into account. Remorse, degree of remorse, contrition for the crime offended, committed. Those have to be taken into account by the judge. And when they're all weighed up, including the capacity to, sorry, the likelihood of reoffending, it might be that the sentence ends up being very low. Now, the algorithm was working out whether this person will reoffend, And it said, yes, they will. So it gave them a high score, 9 out of 10. And it might be, okay, that the person eventually does go on to reoffend, and we all think, oh, the judge got it wrong. Well, mm. let's be clear. We don't know whether the judge got it wrong because in, in order to work out how the judge performed in relation to the machine, we need to access what the judge thought about that person's prospects of reoffending were. If we can isolate what the judge thought about that and set that score, if you will, against the machine's score, then we can know what the judge or how the judge performed. Because the judge has to take into account a lot of other things, not just propensity to reoffend, it's difficult to make that comparison there. I just think it's important to, to add that yeah. when we engage in comparing the algorithm to the machine we've got to narrow down on exactly what it is that the algorithm purports to do and what what would the human do on that specific criterion yeah and it reminds me of this is a little ridiculous but you know how <laughs> every x amount of time there's a new study that comes out that says oh pomegranates are the best thing the best fruits for you or right. you should eat more carrots because they have this or that and it increases your lifespan yeah. and really those those studies that come out it's a little absurd because there are so many x factors in yeah. each person's life that they study and yeah maybe they have some carrots but it's really hard to say that with definite 99 to 100% accuracy that yeah. this equals that and so yeah it's it makes complete sense what you're talking about yeah there there is that piece of it but then there are so many other layers to this and that's just one use case right yeah and that's why i think that it's really fascinating that the, as you peel back the layers of this onion all of the questions that start coming up and all of the different pieces that you need to keep in mind. And one other thing that I, I would just say on this uh, <laughs> that I thought was amazing in the book is how you mentioned that adding more people to a process, a decision-making process, doesn't necessarily equate 
that the decision is going to be correct or you're going to get a better outcome, I should say. So I, I find that really interesting because I've heard a lot of advocates for unbiased or more diversity within the way that AI is being developed. And I think we all, again, it's like we all agree on that right? We all think that, yes, there should be diversity when it comes to how AI is being developed, because it shouldn't just be the same people sitting around a table, and then they have a lot of blind spots, and then you have something that comes out like the Microsoft chatbot, and you go, who let that get out? How did nobody see the potential downfalls of that? But one thing that you start to peel back the layers of this onion, and you start to realize, okay, yeah, just by adding more people and adding more diverse heads in the room isn't going to necessarily equal a better outcome. And so these are all the things that the caveats that I speak about really opened my eyes when I was reading this book just to be really keep these things in mind. And it comes down to how there's just not a simple solution to any of this. And we love as humans to narrate simple solutions that this is the answer, right? That we're going to have it if we just do X, Y, and Z, then it's going to be better. But you start looking a little deeper and you realize, well, what about this? What about that? And again, this isn't to say that we shouldn't try and we shouldn't always be iterating and trying to make it better and figuring out ways that we can do this better. But I'm very weary and very skeptical now of anyone that comes and tells me that we're, we need to do this to have a better, a more trustworthy or unbiased system. Yeah. So the second point I was going to make actually about, about bias um, is precisely this thing about how to resolve the question. So you, you started off by saying, by asking you, how can we manage bias? If we can't quite solve it. How do we manage it? And the example I gave of the compass algorithm and these different algorithmic measures of fairness and how they're incompatible and you have to make a choice uh, was meant to, these examples were meant to demonstrate just what the management problem entails. So to be clear, the management problem entails navigating conflicting intuitions of, of fairness in society itself. So the management problem is therefore a political problem. It's a, it, it's a squarely a political problem. Just like um, liberalism is a philosophy that strives to find a modus vivendi, vivendi among different forms of life. Liberal, the, solution, the liberal solution to the problem of conflict in society is to basically allow everybody to pursue their own version of the good and leave it to the state simply to provide the mechanisms by which um, these people can uh, pursue their own agendas and their own projects and to resolve conflicts when they arise on a case-by-case basis through generally through the court system. But liberalism doesn't lay down what the ideal uh, good life is. Everybody is allowed to pursue their own vision of that. And so the liberal solution then um, applied here would be something like, well, let, let any society adjudicate for itself through the democratic means at its disposal 
for the resolution of these conflicting value systems. Now, there may it, it just may be that there is no fundamental answer to what counts as fair. I, I, I can't necessarily tell you that calibration is better than um, uh, classification parity, although your point was was well taken. If you go down the uh, classification parity route, where then you you abandon calibration, well, then that means that judges, for example, will have to take into account ethnicity when they interpret risk scores. And that seems to be against the law. I mean, you cannot take ethnicity into account when you're working out whether to set someone free. Um, So uh, there may be no answer, but we've already got an answer. At the moment, it seems like the law is saying, go for calibration. That just seems to be the answer on the basis of anti-discrimination law. Whether we change our mind as a society, it will be decided by the same mechanisms which led to anti-discrimination provisions in the first place. So it's just by uh, the, the churn and the whirligig of, 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 of time, deliberation, democracy playing out. That's the best I can tell you as for how to manage bias. It's a political question, and like most political questions, they um, are, are solved or, or, or rather managed through the ballot box. And it's not clear how, you know, wh- where we'll land on these questions. Mm. So speaking of that, you say at the end of the chapter, when you're talking about bias, that the ball's in our court, right? It's up to us. And I, I feel like that tags along perfectly with what you just said. One problem that I have quite a bit is that you, I think I get paralyzed with how to effectively create change within this world of AI. And I know that we as the consumers of AI, we have a lot of power, but how can we as a consumer, one individual, go and try and speak up for some things that we feel aren't right. Maybe it's just that we feel that compass should not be used in general, or maybe it's that we feel that different AI systems that we realize we've been interacting with are not a good fit for society in general. One thing that I I recognize is uh, where can I voice that complaint? I can complain about it on Twitter maybe, but what else? Yeah, so the, the, the point of saying it's up to us is really perhaps not the best way of saying it's up to us as, as, as citizens, as democratic citizens, which means it's up to us to engage with whatever levers we have to, to agitate for change. Now, not everybody will be in a position to do that. So I, I could see this happening. So we've got anti-discrimination provisions, right? And they mean they they uh, prohibit taking, let's say, gender, ethnicity, um, sexuality into account in in the making of particular decisions, employment decisions, and of course incarceration decisions. 
and it's 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 become clear that that um, uh, protected category, ethnicity, let's say, is now running up against another fact, which is that if we hold persistently to that notion that you cannot take those protected characteristics into account when sentencing, then it's inevitable that we are going to occasion unfairness by the lights of the classification parity measure. And that then might lead to a parliamentary committee, let's say in the, in, from the UK context, a parliamentary committee inquiry, then there will be a call for evidence. And one of the questions in that parliamentary um, investigation will be something like, how should we make an exception for the taking of ethnicity into account in circumstances where it is currently prescribed under anti-discrimination law? And then they'll get evidence by various experts so I've got one last question for you. This has been incredible talking to you, John. Are you a robot? I'm not a robot. <laughs> I'm 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 um I'm close to being a walking algorithm. I'm very methodical in my way, but I'm not a robot. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on here and chatting with me and everyone listening check out this book. I implore you to do so. A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence. It is fascinating. And we just scratched the surface really with our conversation here today. There's so much more in this book that we couldn't get to. And I have so many other questions that I would have loved to ask you. But as time works, it just keeps moving forward. And then who knows, maybe we'll have you on for a part two. And hopefully you continue writing great books uh, that I can continue reading. <laughs> Thanks, Demetrius. It's been a pleasure. 